there. Okay, now I think it's recording. <laughs> Are you there? I'm still here. Perfect. Okay, I think it's recording. Uh, Our colleague Anna Wilde Matthews is a health reporter. And since March of 2020, she's been regularly talking on the phone with a physician in Bellingham, Washington. What's been going on? How are you doing? I think the theme of the week is gnawing anxiety. Um, Oh, dear. Still? The doctor's name is Christine Hancock. Christine works in a federally funded clinic and serves a very vulnerable population. She sees a lot of elderly patients, and most have serious health conditions. Early on, Christine was grappling with what was happening. Is it safe to go to the clinic? And can I go to the grocery store? It's just like so much like uncertainty, I think. Um, and, yeah. you know, uncertainty about when things are going to be. Anna thought this was going to be a straightforward pandemic story because Christine feared many of her patients would be hit hard by COVID. I thought it was going to be about, and she thought it was going to be about, the devastating impact that COVID 19 would have on her patients. We thought it seemed likely that many of her patients could be infected and could become very, very sick. And that was the story I think both she and I thought we'd be telling. Instead, after nearly two years, Christine is facing a different and more insidious health crisis in the shadow of the pandemic. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, December 17th. Coming up on the show, the hidden medical toll of this pandemic, as seen through the eyes of one doctor. This episode is brought to you by Natrol. Natrol is America's number one drug-free sleep aid brand, helping you fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Natrol melatonin gummies are made with clean ingredients, like 99% pure melatonin, to work with your sleep cycle, helping you sleep better, making the next day your best day. Natrol. Sleep tonight. Live tomorrow. Shop now at Natrol.com. This product helps with occasional sleeplessness. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent diseases. So, Anna, can you introduce us to Christine Hancock? Dr. Hancock is a primary care physician. She works at CMAR Community Health Centers, a clinic in Bellingham, Washington. She's 40 years old. She serves a group of patients who have a lot of challenges, uh, people who are low income, some on Medicaid, some uninsured. She has approximately 1,900 patients who she oversees. It's like the first time that I haven't been at work or working um, for like since I last talked to you because I was on call all weekend. She, as a physician and as a person, I think she's very meticulous. She's very careful. Colleagues described her as incredibly thoughtful. She's the colleague who would remember people's birthdays. She's the colleague who would check in about your kids. Did you feel that? Did she ask about you? She did. We're both moms. I know my husband's like, why don't they make them do the assignment like during the class period? Like, like why would So we we talked sometimes about our kids and she could sometimes, as we talked over many months during the pandemic, uh, both of us sometimes working from home, we could hear each other's children in the background. But I have a I have a phone call right now. So you'll still get to go to grandma and grandpa's. 
right. Anna first started recording her phone calls with Christine at the beginning of the pandemic. And much of what you'll hear today comes from the recordings Anna made over those many months. In the first weeks after they started talking, Anna tried to get a feel for what was happening at Christine's clinic. Was she overwhelmed with COVID cases? How sick were her patients getting? I kind of thought it would be like this giant wave that was going to be overtaking us, like, you know, sort of similar to the New York situation. You know, if, you know, so many patients and so many 911 calls and, you know, people dying and all of that. And it the kind of the timing of everything feels very much different than that to me. It's more like I keep thinking way? about it. Um, I, it kind of feels more like whack-a-mole, like or something, you know, where it's like it's stretched out like a slow motion video or something like that, where I'm like on guard and then nothing's really happening. And then all of a sudden, like another case will pop up. I really felt like I was like, okay, I'm stealing myself for this, you know, emergency. It's not like that kind of, you know, critical, like singular focus that I sort of expected that I would have. So it's weird. Is it more stressful that it's stretched out? Is this worse in a way? Or? I, it's In some ways, yes, because I think now I'm like, oh, this is going to last a while. Like, we're going to be dealing with this for, you know, months, you know, maybe a couple of years. We're going to lock things down and then we're going to let things back open a little bit and then more hotspots are going to pop up and more people are going to get sick and die and then we're going to lock it back down again and all of us are just going to be, like, <laughs> exhausted. Christine turned out to be right. The pandemic did go on. And as she predicted, she became exhausted. Even without a surge of COVID cases her clinic was backlogged with people wanting appointments. It's just a little bit exhausting, I think, over time with all these kind of ups and downs. As you, as you know, I sort of feel like, all right, well, we dodged that bullet, but, you know, what's next? <laughs> um, and I think right now I'm kind of in a mode where I'm like, I don't even want to talk about it because there's just so many of these patients and so many complicated situations. That's kind of, I'm just in that zone right now of being kind of having my head down and trying to just, like, keep going. Christine was working so hard because some of her patients were starting to struggle. The lockdown was weighing on some people's mental health, triggering setbacks to old behavior. And some patients with chronic health conditions were getting worse. One of the patients worrying Christine was a man named Jamie Milton. He's a 48-year-old guy, um, and he suffers from uh, type 2 diabetes. He has end-stage renal disease. He has chronic gallbladder problems. He has congestive heart failure, sleep apnea, coronary artery disease. He has a history of hepatitis C. So anyway, I guess he has, you know, a tremendous number of chronic health conditions. How long have you been treating him? Like, I think he's, he's really been my patient as far as back as I can remember since I came to my job. I remember meeting him and his partner or ex-partner, Cindy, like, you know, pretty early on because they were kind of like this unit that would come in to see me and have various kind of, you know, one would come in with the other one and have something else that you wanted to talk about. Jamie reported to me that he had had a, you know, kind of 20-year history of IV meth and heroin use. He's a very generous person, you know, and he's willing to give his precious time to, like, help others learn about you know, addiction and, and the consequences of that. And, you know, so Anna told me about a pivotal moment in Christine and Jamie's doctor-patient relationship. In 2017, Christine helped Jamie get off heroin. Cindy, who is his, you know, best friend and former wife, 
first started getting treated with Suboxone, which is a medication that helps people who are opioid dependent get off the drugs. And it started working for her. And then Jamie, seeing that, came to Dr. Hancock also with Cindy's encouragement and asked for similar help. And it worked for him. How did he change in terms of his, what he was like when he yeah, got I mean, off I think drugs? It's um, something that I think I've heard other folks who prescribe Suboxone describe that, like, it feels like somebody has woken up out of a dream or out of, like, a fugue. Like, it was the first time, like, I had actually seen him, like, sit up in his chair and look at me, and his skin cleared up, and he wasn't constantly scratching in his skin because he didn't have, you know, kind of chronic issues from, you know, injection, drug use, and, you know, his clothes are clean, and he's taking better care of himself and, you know, showering more often, that kind of stuff. He was almost unrecognizable to me, like, how much he had changed. And I never realized that that was even a possibility for him, like that what he could he could be in that state. By July 2020, a couple months into the pandemic, Jamie was off drugs and trying to stay healthy. He'd lost weight and had got treated for hepatitis C. But Jamie had kidney failure and was on dialysis. He needed a transplant. And with Christine's encouragement, Jamie went to see a specialist in Seattle. His health was so improved that they recommended him for a new kidney. When he did get approved, did he call you and like, oh my God, I got approved? Or did you call him? I don't know how that happened, but like, was there a moment when it was like, oh my God, you did it, you know? (laughs) I just recall being surprised. I was like, wow, you actually went and saw the transplant specialist. Like, that is amazing, because that's just not an easy thing to get on the list for or to get an appointment for. Like, I have a note that says, you know, blah, blah, blah. He is very motivated to undergo transplantation, is willing to undergo workups. Oh, my God. So he, so he, she was going to recommend him? Yes. Yes, exactly. He was on the verge. So in early July, Jamie had found out that he was being recommended for the kidney transplant list. And then just a few weeks later, the following month in August, he tested positive for meth. And then weeks after that, he confessed that he had been using heroin. And he knew the cost of that. He knew it could cost him his place on the kidney transplant list. But he kept using anyway. Anna was able to talk to Jamie about what led him to that moment. He blamed the stress of the pandemic and his fear of catching COVID. When did you relapse? That happened during the 2020? It was during this pandemic just it got to be too much just the stress of all of it never known you know afraid to go out because i hear like like people that are vulnerable if they get it they're gonna die and me being vulnerable being on dialysis heart situation and everything i was like i was worried and that's what started it all how were you feeling? You were just just scared or lonely? Yeah, or? yeah just worried, scared, lonely, worried. I was always stressed out, uh, like like going to dialysis, being on the bus with other people. Just it was too much. 
Do you do anything else for fun? I mean, watch TV I, I, or go outside? I used to go fishing and I used to go crabbing, but I haven't been doing that. I didn't do that at all last year. So the fishing and crabbing, did you stop because you, of the COVID? You didn't want to kind of yeah. be out with other people? Yeah, exactly. Did yeah. you stop doing other things that you liked? I Yeah, I quit seeing my family. I quit seeing uh, everybody. I just pretty much a little self-isolated in my own. Do you think that's one of the reasons, like, you said it was stress, but is that, like, kind of what you were, part of what you were upset or stressed about at the time? Yeah. Like, you aren't seeing anybody? Yeah. Christine told Anna that she partially blamed the pandemic for Jamie's relapse as well. You know, part of that has to do with their isolation and just, like, that they haven't been able to see family and kind of get that good supportive um, help from everybody that they needed to stay sober So I guess, you know, probably yes, because that isolation is such a trigger for people, especially with PTSD and substance use disorders. It's just like you take away that fabric and then things just fall apart. The fabric just tears. It's like so predictable and awful. By the fall of 2020, many of Christine's patients were starting to struggle. These were not impacts of people being directly affected by COVID-19. These were other types of impacts on their mental and physical health. So she had one patient who became homeless. She had some patients who relapsed, like Jamie. She had patients who had new and emerging mental health challenges. People were isolated and alone and under stress and not in their usual situations. And it was making things very difficult for a lot of people. So even though they did not actually come down with COVID-19, they still were deeply affected. Christine didn't know it at the time, but these were the first signs of an emerging crisis for many of her patients that would get a lot worse in 2021. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing carefully, consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Company. At the start of this year, Christine was optimistic that the weight of the pandemic would start to lift. The first COVID vaccines had just been approved for the high-risk patients she treated. How are you doing? How are you and your patients? 
You know, it's been a crazy week because we got 1,000 doses of vaccine. And so in order to get through them, we need to be giving like, you know, 200 to 250 doses per day. And like, you know, for me, a typical schedule of patients that I would see is like, you know, 25 or something. So this is like 10 times the number of patients that any one of our providers would see on a daily basis wow. that we're trying to... Like- Despite the promise of vaccines, Christine was still worried about her patient's health. Some who'd struggled during 2020 we're now facing serious health crises. Right now, I have two patients who I'm pretty concerned they may not live through the weekend because their health is so decompensated. One of those patients was Jamie. I got a message yesterday, like, he had talked to, I think, his case manager, and she was really worried about him because his breathing sounded labored and he refused to go to dialysis. He was due yesterday and he hadn't gone in. And um, so I called him because he had an appointment with me that he missed yesterday, and he was barely able to speak in a full sentence. You know, I could hear every time he took a breath, I could hear it over the phone. Um, oh, my God. And what did you say to him during that phone conversation, if you remember? I mean, I basically, I literally had my head in my hands because I was like, okay, I really want to, like, get in, in the mind of this guy because I know that he's suffering tremendously. And if I kind of talk to him in an academic way, or a very paternalistic way, like that's not going to work. And so, you know, I basically said to him, I can see why you don't want to go to the emergency room because it's not nobody's favorite place. But um, I'm really concerned that your body might not have enough energy to make it until tomorrow with the way that you're breathing right now. And so, you know, I think I said something to the effect of like, I really care about you. I really don't want that to happen to you. And so I really want you to go in and get checked out before you get to that point. And then basically, I could not get back in contact with him after I had spoken with him at midday. So we called um, the police to do a welfare check on him. The paramedics went out and he refused to go to the hospital. Wait, wait, wait so how do you was... feel about that? Just like I can hear in your voice that you're stressed and worried. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, with like with all these other patients, it's just like such a hopeless and helpless feeling to feel like, you know, this guy was, he was literally clean for two years. He was on the transplant list for a new kidney. He's not even 50 yet. And so, he, you know, I don't know, like, short of me driving to his house and trying to take him to the hospital myself, I literally do not know what else to do. Like, I, and, and this is like such a quandary for anybody who works with patients with like addiction because you know that there are times when you cannot literally cannot help people and they they have to make their own choices but at the same time like I you know care deeply for this man I've taken care of him for over five years you know like I don't want him to die I want him to make it through this so he can actually like make a choice where he's not in his right mind right now he can't really make a a clear choice and so uh, yeah eventually Jamie's situation stabilized He started going to dialysis again and was able to stop using drugs. Jamie told Anna that much of his improvement was thanks to Christine. Do you think she saved your life? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On probably a couple different occasions. Like when she sent the ambulance? When uh, she got me to quit by giving me the spots to help me quit. And uh, being there, no matter what. And what's she like as a doctor? She's great. She's the best doctor I've ever had. She cares about her patients. She can relate to her patients. She 
would do anything for one of her patients. She uh, got me off the pain pills and off the heroin by wow. uh, helping me uh, get on the right programs. She helped me get off all that. She didn't judge me. Yeah. Because a lot of doctors would judge you just right off the bat. And that's bad at the uh, hospital here. Doctors judging people. Yeah. But she didn't. Not at all. Jamie never fully regained his health. He got an infection and went in and out of the hospital. It became so bad that he developed sepsis and landed in the ICU. Anytime anybody is septic, I just fear for their life, you know, um, and especially somebody who has, you know, end-stage renal disease on dialysis and diabetes and other stuff. It's just like, you know, all the more concerning about whether that person's going to recover or not. Oh, God. I mean, how did you feel, like, after all this? I mean, in some ways, Jamie's kind of like a cat with nine lives. You're like, wow, he's still going. But then he also has these, like, incredible, you know, kind of obstacles that he has to overcome. And I think mostly I was like, I really hope this isn't, you know, his last chance because clearly, like, he's extremely sick. Do you really think he's going to die in the next six months? Yeah, I do. In late May, Christine talked to Jamie and his ex-partner, Cindy, and they decided to try palliative care, which is focused on easing pain. But when Christine and her team tried to set it up for Jamie, she found out that the palliative care team was backlogged and overwhelmed with demand. You know, in terms of pandemic-related shortages, the other thing that's been really challenging is that we sent um, a referral for palliative care for him last Monday, so it's been almost two weeks. Um, We called every single day, including myself calling, which is kind of unusual. So, like, they're, like, you know, up to their eyebrows. And I think that, you know, the delay in care is emblematic of that. Anyway, I guess for me, it's kind of like, first of all, I feel incredibly sad. I just feel like, you know, I'm so heavy. Like, I, I, I feel so torn up about this family and everything they're going through and, like, helpless. I really can't do much for them. I don't know if I'm even going to see this guy again before he dies. I mean, if he hadn't relapsed, all the pandemic stuff and sort of relapsed, would all this mm-hmm. still happened? Or Because it just feels like he's on such a good trajectory until, like, mm-hmm. fall of 2020. The UW does not transplant kidneys into people that they don't think have a significant life expectancy. So that, to me, is more than anything, like, an indicator that, you know, his life expectancy was good one year ago and now is hospice grade. It is dramatically decreased in that space of time and probably principally because of the relapse and the the complications from that. On June 30th, Christine let me know that Jamie had died. He died in the hospital with Cindy by his side. She spoke to Cindy that night, and after that, she recorded a voice memo memorializing her thoughts and feelings on that day. Cindy was obviously just sobbing, um, destroyed. She was saying she just didn't know what to do, like how was she even going to sleep? Feeling super lost. Um, and just, you know, um, that they had been together off and on for over 30 years, and he had been such a big protector for her. She said that 
you know, she felt like he was actually around as long as he was because of her, because he, he felt like he needed to stay around and protect her. And also, I just feel very grateful myself and for her that he didn't die alone, that he didn't die in one of those episodes where we were waiting for an ambulance or, you know, trying to get him to go to the hospital. Um, that he had support, he had help, he had medication to help keep him comfortable. Anyway, hard day <laughs> for that, among many other reasons, but um, that's how it goes sometimes. So that's what I got to say. When Anna started talking to Christine almost two years ago, she thought the story would be about COVID. Instead, Christine's story has turned out to be about the struggles her patients had in living with the stress and the loneliness of this time and dealing with a healthcare system that was pushed to the brink. It's probably a trend that will emerge more clearly over time, according to researchers I interviewed. I spoke to someone who's the president of the American Heart Association who said that we're going to be living with the ripple effects and the echoes of this pandemic for a long time. He said we're going to see not only more deaths in the ensuing years, we'll see a lot more disease in people who are living. Jamie wasn't the only patient of Christine's who died this year. She lost more patients this spring than in 2020 or in 2019. Anna and Christine talked about this shortly before Jamie died. I've had a lot of patients die <laughs> this year for some reason. And the pattern for a patient who's super chronically ill is they just keep taking hits like this. You know, they're like, they kind of stabilize for a little while. And it's just like, you're like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> they're back in the hospital for, you know, X, Y, or Z. Actually, I'm sorry. I don't realize. I thought. I'm not sure. I realized that you had so many deaths this year. Is that a pandemic thing, or just? I don't know. I I really I, I was thinking about that too because every time someone dies in the hospital, they send me like a notification. It's and really so, like in in 2019, I had like two patients. In 2018, I don't think I had anybody. And just since March, I've had five patients die. Since March of 2020 or March of 2021? How many? Five. Good Lord. And what are they dying of? Heart failure, liver failure, alcoholism, cancer. <laughs> so the question I have is, you know, is this pandemic related? Like, did all these people, you know, have they just had this accumulated weight of all these health problems that they didn't take care of because of the pandemic and then therefore they passed or not, you know, but I think just because a lot of the systems of care have gotten increasingly fragmented with COVID, we're both not catching things early enough. And also people are still not coming in early enough to be evaluated or the access has been so limited because of the backlog of care that they can't get an appointment. And so I think that it's just this very um, fine web of support that we're barely holding people up with. And right now there's just these big holes in the web that people are falling through that weren't as big before. We were barely, you know, kind of keeping them up, but now they're, they're not there anymore. You're doing so much for folks and like, it's like they're still ending up in the hospital. How do you, how do you feel? 
I mean, I guess my question for, you know, I guess it isn't really a good question, but I'm just like, where is this all heading? Like, what is the end point of all of this dysfunction? Like, is it, you know, just a cascading kind of like set of, you know, mortalities and morbidities that all of these patients are going to end up suffering? Like, am I just going to start seeing like all these kind of bad effects kind of pile up? Is there something about this that, you know, improved vaccination rates and improved community outreach, like, is that going to make a dent in this? Or is it really like that this is a permanent kind of scar on this entire kind of segment of society that will never be healed? Like, what what's the end point for all of this? And what are you thinking is going to happen or fearing is going to happen? I mean, I, I think probably more of the same of, you know, exactly what we're talking about, like, I don't really see, like, you know, there's no help on the horizon. There's nobody who's, you know, kind of coming in to, you know, clean up the mess or help these folks get back on their feet now that they've been isolated and struggling for months and years. There never was and there isn't now. So I think the difference is that people were kind of limping along and sort of keeping up. And and right now, they're really not. That's all for today, Friday, December 17th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Ryan Knudsen and me, Kate Leinbaugh. The show is produced by Annie Baxter, Catherine Brewer, Akedi Foster-Keys, Pia Godkari, Rachel Humphreys, Matt Kwong, Annie Minoff, Laura Morris, Afif Nasuli, Enrique Perez de la Rosa, Sarah Platt, Alan Rodriguez-Espinoza, Willa Rubin, Kayla Stokes, and Annie Rose Strasser. Our engineers are Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Peter Leonard, Bobby Lord, Emma Munger, So Wiley, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.